This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. Prologue. I've seen my father's father struggle to make his life. In a strange land, he worked his body day and night. In his soul lies the freedom that is destined to be whole. In his eyes lies the charity that will save his mortal soul. Exploding boy, charity. For starters, most of you probably have no idea who I am. And while knowing me or my backstory isn't paramount to enjoying or relating to all the stories I'm going to put out into the world with this podcast, it will definitely help. So here goes. I was born in Rochester, New York in 1971 to a 16-year-old unwed mother and 18-year-old father. I was given up for adoption immediately. More on this in later episodes. I was adopted by my parents, Robert and Ann Petrantoni, who at the time believed that they were unable to have children. They would adopt my sister, Julia, at birth five years later. And as a complete surprise, my mother later got pregnant and gave birth to my brother, John, the year that I started high school. I was given the name Michael Joseph Petrantoni, Michael after my father's father, and Joseph after my mother's father. I would adopt the moniker Michael J. in my late 20s after a slew of misspellings on promo materials and club marquees advertising my solo acoustic ventures. Once a venue manager in Gainesville, Florida said, you're killing me with this last name, dude. You've got to do something about it. I knew that I'd never be Michael Petrantoni professionally unless I was blessed with John Cougar Mellencamp level success, and that didn't appear to be happening anytime soon. Note, in his early career, John Mellencamp went by John Cougar until such time as he became a household name with a ton of hit songs and industry clout and decided to start using his real last name again. So, I went with my middle initial, not really properly thinking through all the additional confusion that this would cause. Are you Michael Jordan? Michael Jackson? Michael J. Fox? On another side note, my birth father's last name actually is Fox. So yes, in a twisted way, I am Michael J. Fox. Although, after doing a search for and finding both of my birth parents in my 30s, I would learn that had they not given me up for adoption, my given name would have been James Anthony Fox. Truthfully, at this point, I've been Michael J. both personally and professionally for quite a bit longer than I was ever the other guy. Most people I know now, with the exception of friends from my earlier life, call me MJ or Michael J. My parents owned and ran an Italian bakery called Savoia Pastry Shop or Savoia's in the city of Rochester. Savoia's was founded in 1929 by my father's parents, Teresa and Michael Petrantoni, with barely a fifth-grade education between the two of them. They named it after the Royal House of Savoia in Italy. They lived with all their kids, my father included, above the shop. Everybody in the family had to work. This is something that continued on throughout my upbringing and childhood as well, and I credit both my parents and the tradition of my grandparents with the insane work ethic I happen to be blessed with. My father was, and still is, a true musician. 
He always dreamed of being a touring guy and performed live around town every single chance he got, although he traded most of his musical aspirations for an apron and a baker's hat. This is something I'll be forever grateful for. My family never wanted for anything, but we were always taught that you needed to work for things, and work we did. From the time I could stand on two legs and speak English, I worked in the family bakery. My parents started me in music lessons in a group piano class at the age of three. I don't recall much from those early lessons other than being utterly fascinated by music. I probably always had a touch of ADHD, so even from this early age, I had trouble focusing on any kind of lessons or structure. I remember making up my own little songs from pretty much the exact second my hands hit the piano keys. Music always loomed large in my life. For me, it was the combination of both nature and nurture. My father, Robert, is an accomplished jazz saxophonist, and my mother played clarinet when she was growing up, although she would never claim to anyone that she was ever a musician, or even musical for that matter. But she certainly had a profound love of music, which is something she passed on to me in spades. My birth father, Jim Fox, was consequently the drummer for the Canadian rock outfit Toronto. They were formed in the late 1970s in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and are best known for the top 10 Canadian hit, Your Daddy Don't Know, which also cracked the U.S. pop charts, and for writing and performing the original version of What About Love, a song that would later become a top 10 comeback single for the band Heart. Ironically enough, several gold albums by Toronto hung in the recording studio where I did all my early work, unbeknownst to me. My birth father was literally right under my nose for all the early years of my life. His photo was on the fucking album covers that I saw every time I had a cup of coffee out there. More on that later as well. When I started the third grade, the school I was attending began offering guitar lessons under the tutelage of a guy named Ron Centola. My parents were keen on keeping me in some kind of music lessons because I showed such an interest in it early on, so they didn't push back at all when I excitedly came home from school one day with a flyer about guitar lessons, begging them to let me take guitar instead of piano for the upcoming year. There were about six students in my particular class that had signed up, and they took us all out of class that day to bring us down to the school gym to introduce us to Mr. Centola and to give us the rental guitars that we would be using for the year to learn on. As I recall, they were cheap, nylon-string, classical-style guitars, but none of us really cared. We were about to take guitar lessons. And minutes later, when we all paraded back into the front of our classroom carrying these guitars in their little cases, there was a collective, ooh, ah, cool, from the rest of the kids. It was at that moment that I knew exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Guitar became an obsession for me. If I'm being honest, it still is. I loved playing piano, but guitar. Guitar was something entirely different. There was a swagger that it gave me, a confidence that I lacked on my own. Before I even knew what a guitar was, I was grabbing my father's tennis racket and tying shoestrings to it as a sort of makeshift guitar strap and putting on imaginary concerts from atop my parents' bed, singing along to Partridge Family, Bay City Rollers, and Sean Cassidy records. My childhood fantasy was that I was a big rock star performing an outdoor concert in front of the school playground for all the kids at school, who would then love me and make me a part of their group. I realize now as an adult that this was a deep-seated yearning in me for acceptance and acknowledgement. I wanted desperately to belong and to be admired. My inner child, my inner adopted child, felt that he had none of these things. I didn't really get a handle on my identity until many years later, with a search and eventual reunion with my birth parents and all of my half-siblings on both sides. 
These feelings of inadequacy, imposter syndrome, and of feeling different from others like an outcast are something I have struggled with for my entire life. But they were effectively the engine that fueled me and pushed me to work as hard as I have and to keep striving. Piano was my therapy. Guitar was my therapy. Songwriting was my therapy. All these things combined were the medicine that honestly saved my life. I started my first band with my friend Anthony, who was the original bassist for my band Exploding Boy. He and I attended preschool together from the time when we were both about four or five. To this day, he's still my friend. More than a friend. Family. My brother. He and I and another neighborhood kid named Frank who played drums started rehearsing regularly in Frank's basement and putting on little shows for neighborhood kids and at family gatherings in my family's basement. We would do a New Year's Eve show every year for all the aunts and uncles and cousins and family friends that we would rehearse for all year long. Our repertoire was limited, consisting of songs like Stairway to Heaven and I Don't Care Anymore by Phil Collins. The average age of all three of us was probably no more than 12 to 14, so we didn't end up getting very far and doing very much, but we had fun, and I knew that I loved being in a band. One fateful day after I had started high school, I met a kid outside of a classroom named Jason. He asked me if I could keep an eye on a boombox he'd brought to school while he went in to talk to a biology teacher that we both shared, really showing my age here. We all brought boomboxes to school back then at some point. I noticed right away that there was a giant Rush sticker on it, so I commented to him that I also happened to love the band Rush, and we struck up a conversation. He was a sophomore and was a year older than I was and mentioned that he was a drummer looking to put a band together. I told him I played keyboards and guitar and was also looking to get into a band. After a couple false starts and failed rehearsals with some other kids who went to our school, I suggested we start a three-piece rock band, just like Rush, I might add, and bring in my childhood friend Anthony. Thus, Exploding Boy was born. We played one gig under the name Six Wolves for a field day event at our high school and soon after took the name Exploding Boy after a song from the 80s band The Cure suggested by Jason. Since no one else had a better name suggestion, it stuck. And it did so for 13 years to follow. We landed a bunch of graduation parties from our field day appearance at school and soon found ourselves on all-ages shows and as an opening act at local clubs in and around Rochester as well as the occasional high school dance, both at our high school and at others. We very quickly developed a great reputation and a sizable following locally. We were good for a draw of at least 250 to 300 people once a month anywhere we would play. We soon met our manager, Tony Gross, who was a former student of our high school and who also owned a recording studio. Tony had been the guitarist for classic rock band Head East and had a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with us. Exploding Boy recorded our first and second records there at GFI Studios in Ontario, New York, on the same vintage MCI console that Metallica used to record their debut, Kill 'Em All. Note, Metallica recorded their iconic first record in Rochester, New York, in 1983 at a place called Music America, which subsequently closed and where Tony purchased the mixing console. Over the course of our 13 years together as an alternative rock band, we would go on to garner a ton of interest and buzz from major record labels, and would travel to and from New York City to play multiple showcases, never managing to secure ourselves a record deal, always flying just below the radar. We opened shows for everyone from a flock of seagulls, Billy Squire, Joe Walsh, to Cheap Trick and Pat Travers, Jackal, and the Goo Goo Dolls, to name a few. We would appear on national television twice, once on the nationally syndicated Battle of the Band-style show, pre-American Idol, called Yamaha's Soundcheck 
and the second time as the house band for the day on The Jenny Jones Show. We were named one of the top 12 best unsigned bands of 1999 by Billboard and Musician Magazines shortly before disbanding. There were several incarnations of the band as our original bassist Anthony left to get married and start a family around 1994 or 95, and we brought in a second guitarist named Jim and a bassist named Joel to round out the group. There will be much more on all this later. After Exploding Boy ended in 2000, I moved with my girlfriend at the time down to Gainesville, Florida, and I began playing solo acoustic shows to support myself. I went on to write songs with Stan Lynch, the original drummer for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and I also worked with Ken Block of Sister Hazel and Chris Nix, guitarist for Jonathan Davis of Korn, another guy I'm still friends with. I released several self-produced full-length solo records, several EPs, and numerous singles, and also began producing and engineering releases for a number of young and -and up-and-coming independent artists. I had songs that I wrote featured in the film Three Needles, starring Lucy Liu, Chloe Sevigny, and Sandra Oh, and ABC Family's hit television series, Falcon Beach. After 13 years in Gainesville, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, where I toured as a sideman with artists Brandon Ray, James Otto, Jesse G, Chuck Wicks, platinum-selling Canadian country artist Aaron Goodwin, 90s alternative rock act Freddie Jones Band, and others. Most recently, I've been the guitarist, keyboardist, and backing vocalist for platinum-selling Columbia Riverhouse artist Jameson Rogers. Over all these years and through all these experiences on and off stage, countless hours and days on the road, I've gathered a wealth of stories which are the basis, the bedrock, and the starting point of this program moving forward. Episode 1, When I Think of Mississippi. Do you still smile every time you hear a cowbell? When the rebels win, do you still raise hell? Would you trade a palm tree for a magnolia? If you were here now, would you let me hold you? Do you still sound like you're from this town that you swore you'd never leave? Girl, I miss you. Wish you were here with me. Do you ever miss me when you think of Mississippi? Jameson Rogers, when you think of Mississippi. I have a love-hate relationship with Mississippi. On one hand, it's given rise to what has been possibly the best career opportunity of my life, and also a friendship and musical brotherhood with Jameson Rogers and the guys in his band and crew. Jameson is originally from Batesville, Mississippi. He initially found success co-writing multi-platinum selling hit songs for Florida Georgia Line, the top 10 single Talk You Out of It, Chris Lane's number one single I Don't Know About You, along with Camouflage Hat on Jason Aldean's album Nine, and the title track of Luke Bryan's album Born Here, Live Here, Die Here. He had his first hit song as an artist and performer in 2019 with Some Girls, which climbed to number one on Billboard's Country Airplay chart in 2019. The song went on to earn more than 207 million on-demand streams and was ranked number 17 on Billboard's 2020 year-end Country Airplay Songs chart. He then teamed up with Luke Combs for what became his second consecutive number one hit single, Cold Beer Calling My Name. He followed all that success up with the full-length release, Bet You're From a Small Town, and I've had the time of my life touring in support of that music and a slew of consecutive singles that followed. I had some positive experiences and a whole lot of fun playing gigs and spending a bunch of time in Mississippi in the mid to late 90s with Exploding Boy. We always looked forward to our Mississippi shows back then, especially in Jackson, Mississippi. The crowds were always raucous and seemingly starved for entertainment, and we thrived on that energy. I've also played two of the most exciting and best gigs of my life there with Jameson and the guys, both times at a venue called The Lyric in Oxford, Mississippi. One of those shows in 2021 was filmed, recorded, and released as a live album called Live from Oxford, Mississippi, 
which is consequently also the very first major label project I've ever been involved in. On the other hand, Mississippi has played host to several of the most terrifying moments of my life and also one of my most embarrassing experiences. 1. Oxford Back in 1998, my band Exploding Boy was playing a gig at a college bar in Oxford, Mississippi called The Library. On this particular day, sometime in the late afternoon, we'd finished up our sound check and headed out to find something to eat. We all settled on a little sub shop around the corner from the venue. Now, I've suffered from digestive issues my entire life, going back to when I was a little kid, and this is one of those times where something I ate violently disagreed with me. The library was a great venue. The stage was quite large and was flanked on either side by men's and women's restrooms, respectively. The bar ran the length of the room perpendicular to the stage, and there was a large open floor in between them. We were about 45 minutes into our first set when I began experiencing the most horrible I'm going to have to go right now type of stomach cramps. I walked over to our bassist Joel and our drummer Jason mid-song, and I informed them of my impending stomach emergency. I told them we were going to have no choice but to cut our first set just a little short unless we wanted to quickly take our act into Gigi Allen territory. For those unfamiliar, Kevin Michael Gigi Allen, born Jesus Christ Allen, can't make this stuff up, was an American punk rock musician and songwriter. He was best known for his controversial live performances, which often included self-mutilation, defecating on stage, and assaulting audience members, for which he was arrested and imprisoned on multiple occasions. None of us had any interest in going there. The bar had started filling up at the beginning of our set, and we'd already won over the crowd after only a few songs. It was Friday night in a college town. They were ready to party and they loved us. This was the only time in my life that this response to one of my performances would not work out in my favor. We quickly finished the song we were playing, which, as I vividly recall through what I believe to be some sort of physical crisis sense memory, was a cover of One by U2. I made a frantic exit towards the men's restroom, which was located to the left of the stage as soon as the last chord was done ringing out. I opened the restroom door, and much to my shock and horror, discovered that there was only one stall available, almost directly in front of the door, looking out onto the floor area in front of the stage. Even worse, there was no door on the stall, or any other stall in the entire bathroom. I was at DEFCON 1 on the I'm going to shit myself scale, so I had no choice but to use the only toilet at my disposal. If this were a quiet night at the club, things still would have been ridiculously uncomfortable. But this was a packed college bar early on a Friday night, which turned it into the stuff of nightmares. Things went from bad to much worse every time someone would come into the bathroom. The door would swing open, and I'm almost positive that I was clearly visible from most places in the club in that stall with no door. At least it felt that way at the time. This debacle was made far worse by the fact that every new fan of the band that walked in and recognized me immediately wanted to have a full conversation about how great they thought we were. Talk about wanting to just disappear completely. I can't overstate just how sick I was getting. The door continued to swing open every few seconds, presenting an endless line of guys who would immediately see me and say, Dude, you guys fucking rock! Simultaneously exposing me in all my feverish, half-naked, projectile-shitting glory to the rest of the bar. I almost felt like just raising my hand and waving each time the door opened. Hi, everybody. 
I've tried very hard to remember another time in my life where I was ever more embarrassed or uncomfortable, and I still can't think of a single solitary one. Two. Cleveland. Exploding Boy were booked to play two back-to-back nights in the small town of Cleveland, Mississippi, which sits in the heart of the Mississippi Delta, perched on historic Highway 61 between Memphis, Tennessee and Vicksburg, Mississippi. The venue was another college bar whose name I can't recall. It was, incidentally, the only time in my career that I was able to go on stage and utter that most famous of lines from the movie Spinal Tap. Hello, Cleveland! Rock and roll! Into the mic. No one there that night cared, or was impressed, or even mildly amused. But I was very tickled by it. I still am. Despite my poor attempt at humor, we had a great show, and we were invited by some of the local crowd to come to an after-hours party when we were done. We were a young band on the road, and we were always up for the party, so we all readily agreed. And since we were playing the same club the following night, there wouldn't be much of a loadout, giving us plenty of time for uninterrupted post-show debauchery. There was one particular guy at the gig that night that stood out from the rest of the crowd like a sore thumb. He had a face full of piercings and was tatted up within an inch of his life. He loved our band, and as a result, he'd bought every single item of merch we had for sale that night. He was hanging around with us after the show, asking all sorts of questions and just generally doing that thing that certain fans do. He seemed harmless, and he was also feeding our egos. So he was all good as far as we were concerned. Unbeknownst to us, he had apparently started trouble with some of the fraternity guys in the bar and had pissed all of them off. When he shyly asked us if he could tag along with us to the after-hours party, we gladly obliged. We left out the side entrance near the stage and all climbed into our van. Our bassist, Joel, was driving, I was riding shotgun, and our drummer, Jason, and our new fan were in the back seat. We pulled around the side of the building to find out that we were blocked by an angry mob of about 40 to 50 fraternity guys some holding empty beer bottles. They all knew we had the tattooed guy with the face piercings in our van, and they all wanted to kick his ass. They weren't about to let us go anywhere without trying their hardest to exact revenge on him for whatever wrong they believed he'd done. It was probably about a girl. It's almost always about a girl. Joel was revving the engine and saying threateningly, Get out of the way or I'll drive over you. At that moment, our drummer Jason who had deluded himself into thinking he could somehow reason with this angry, murderous, drunken mob, exited the van abruptly. In his defense, we'd all been drinking for most of the night, and he probably wasn't in his right mind. As soon as I saw him get out, my first thought was that I needed to get out too. In my defense, I was also most likely drunk and probably somewhat delusional. The whole time this was happening, Joel was in the front seat yelling, Don't get out of the van! Don't get out of the van! Over and over. We either weren't listening or we didn't care. It was probably a bit of both. The next series of events happened so fast that it still makes me a bit uneasy. Out of the corner of my eye, I spotted one of the fraternity guys pushing his way through the crowd to where I was standing. I reached out to touch his shoulder as a very poorly considered olive branch, but before I could get the words, hey man, we just want to go hang and drink with you out, he punched me in the face so hard it split my lip wide open and knocked me to the ground. Lesson learned, never touch an angry drunk. The salty, metallic taste of blood filled my mouth, and although I was inebriated and now stunned, the only feeling I could muster was sudden, blinding rage. 
My whole family shares the unenviable trait of being able to go from zero to fuck you, buddy, before anyone even sees it coming. It takes a lot to get me there, but once I am, all rationality leaves my body. I'm a lot like a small dog who angrily squares up against a Great Dane, unaware of any size difference or disadvantage. In my most poorly considered move of the evening, I stood up, looked this angry mob of drunk Mississippi fraternity guys straight in the eyes and angrily yelled, Fuck you, Southern boy. Yeah, I know. Almost immediately, the guy who had punched me and several of his fraternity brothers all pounced on me like lions feeding on a gazelle. They punched and kicked me, and I ended up in a fetal position on the ground using my hands and arms to protect my head. By this time, Joel had left the van and was on the case. He was quite a bit bigger and much more streetwise than both Jay and I, and he immediately had the situation under control. He was systematically grabbing guys and throwing them off of me one at a time while firmly and loudly ordering us both to get back in the van. We obliged at lightning speed. I now had bruised ribs and a black eye to go along with my split and bloody lip. Once we were all back in the van, we sped off amidst a barrage of flying beer bottles, striking the vehicle and shattering all around us. One carload of guys gave chase until we ended up at a stalemate in a Walmart parking lot a few blocks away. Joel once again came to the rescue and was able to talk the guys down. They agreed to let us go on our way without further incident. There would be no after party for us that night. There was only a half-hearted retreat to lick our wounds and to attempt to repair our bruised egos. Joel's words to Jay and I on the ride back to our hotel were very simple. Don't ever get out of the fucking van. Ever. If you ever get out of the fucking van again, I will kill you myself. We dropped Mr. Tattoo Metalface, who was completely white-faced with fear, but also very thankful that we didn't surrender him to the angry mob at his hotel, and we went back to ours. The most frightening realization for me the next morning was that we'd have to return to the venue that night and play another show to what would most likely be the same crowd. I pleaded with my bandmates to not let me out of their sight for even one second. If I have to so much as take a piss, one of you is coming to take a piss with me whether you have to go or not. It was mutually agreed upon that we would all stay together for the whole night and watch each other's backs vigilantly. In truth, I don't know whether I've ever been more frightened on stage than during the first set that night. I remember thinking to myself, is this how I go out? Am I really going to die in a college bar in Cleveland, Mississippi? It felt a bit like being in the crosshairs of an unseen sniper. At some point, a representative from the fraternity that attacked us the previous evening made a formal apology and assured us that we were in no danger and that no retribution would be sought for my verbal faux pas or anything else that occurred. They admitted that things got way too far out of hand for no reason. Your singer didn't deserve what happened. When I first told this story to Jameson between fits of hysterical laughter and wide-eyed disbelief, he said, Dude, you were in the Mississippi Delta. You are lucky to be alive. At least I live to tell about it here all these years later. And it amuses me endlessly that I can still make Jameson laugh really hard just by saying, Fuck you, Southern boy. 3. Batesville
Jameson and the guys and I were booked to play his hometown of Batesville, Mississippi on May 21st, 2022. The day began much like any other day out on the road. Our tour bus had pulled into town in the early morning hours and parked just around the corner from the outdoor stage. Once the members of our band and crew were up and around, we began the usual process of loading the gear in, setting up and preparing for sound check, and searching for coffee and breakfast. It was a beautiful sunny morning, and Jameson and we in the band were all excited to deliver a special and triumphant hometown show that evening. There was a slight chance of some rain moving in later that night, but we had a watchful eye on the weather app and radar, and it looked as though we might luck out and the weather would miss us. There's always the danger of lightning, and I've had more than a few shows over the years cut short or outright canceled because of rain. The rest of the day went off without a hitch, and once we took the stage, it was evident that this night was indeed going to be one of those special gigs, where connection with the audience was effortless and our performance was transcendent. The reason I remember it so vividly was because of what was about to happen directly in the middle of our show-closing song, Some Girls. Some of the aforementioned weather had moved in, and we were experiencing a minor sprinkle or threat of rain. Nothing heavy, but it was definitely starting to come down in small drops. We were almost done with the set anyway, so as long as it held off until we could deliver the last big chord and get our gear covered, it would be all good. Suddenly, and without warning, I noticed the crowd dispersing rapidly and people running in all directions. We use in-ear monitors that allow us to hear ourselves on stage, and they create such a tight seal sometimes that if you don't have a couple mics facing the audience itself, you can feel pretty isolated from them. And sometimes it's difficult to even hear them. At first I thought maybe it had started to rain, but as soon as I saw our tour manager Josie running on stage screaming and flailing his arms and ordering us to put our instruments down and get off stage, I knew this was something else. We stopped mid-song as total chaos ensued around us. We were quickly shuffled off stage into a building directly behind it, along with other festival workers and other friends and family members of Jameson's. Jameson himself was led by several very large security people back to our tour bus, and we were all ordered to stay where we were. Police were soon on the scene, and as near as we could tell, there was an active shooter nearby who had opened fire at someone, which caused the crowd to panic and disperse the way that they did. After about 30 minutes of hunkering down, we were given the all-clear and went about packing up our stuff and getting ready to leave. In the aftermath, I was most concerned with just how unaware I was in the moment of the severity of things. I think everyone felt this way to some degree. Nothing really prepares you for that kind of thing. I have fellow musician friends who were actually on stage during the Route 91 festival shooting in Las Vegas in 2017 who witnessed people being shot and dying in front of the stage. They took direct fire. Their tour bus took direct fire. Absolutely terrifying shit. I never spoke directly with either of those guys about the event, but all reports from their camp and mutual friends were that they were way beyond shaken up over the horrific things that they witnessed. PTSD level shaken up. No amount of therapy on planet Earth level shaken up. I can't even imagine. I can't speak for every touring musician out there, but for me, walking on stage in any venue, indoors or out, after that tragic night has never fully been the same. This is why I'm always happy to not only see heightened security in all venues, but I'm also more than happy to cooperate with them and to take the time to let them do their jobs. In our case, the shooting was far enough away as to not put us in the direct line of fire. And this wasn't a mass shooting event like we seem to have every other week here in America. Police indicated that the shooter and the victim knew each other, and neither was from the local area, so this was an isolated incident. The victim was rushed to a hospital in the nearby city of Oxford in critical condition that night, 
and that's the last I heard of what happened, but we all walked away from it a little shaken up. Jameson, always the most thoughtful person ever, felt the same or worse than we did, given that the night was supposed to be a homecoming for him. So he arranged a meeting for our entire camp prior to our next run of shows on our tour bus with a guy named Ron Stein of a company called Stein Protection and Logistics. Ron has over 24 years of law enforcement experience, including specialized training in SWAT tactics, high-speed and defensive driving tactics, and defensive hand-to-hand tactics. He deals in event production logistics, crowd control, firearms, along with high-profile and VIP escorts and protection. He was head of security for country artist Sam Hunt at the time that he spoke to us, and he's the most real-life badass I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And you'd never know any of it just by looking at him. Ron was an affable guy and ran us through a bunch of imaginary scenarios and taught us that we should always be aware of our surroundings. Locate at least three exits from anywhere that you are. Also, be on the lookout for areas of cover that might protect you and others from gunfire coming from multiple directions. Not something that's exactly intuitive for most people. I had never thought of most of the things he taught us that day, and I still hope that I'm never in a situation where I'll need to apply those lessons. Sadly, this is the world we live in now, and I consider myself only ever so slightly more prepared for those kinds of possible emergencies. But I remain grateful that no one in our band or crew was harmed or in any immediate danger that night. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M-I-S-T-E-R-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Join me next time for another installment, and thank you for listening. Thank you.